Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they came from. I'm Milena Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. You're listening to episode 36, A Dance with Dark Matter. As the name implies, today we're going to hear about how scientists are working to shed light on the properties of this elusive, pervasive substance we call dark matter. Can we even call it a substance? That's a good question. I was thinking about exactly how to phrase this sentence, this pervasive material. I mean, dark matter, right? This pervasive matter called dark matter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mass. This pervasive mass. Yeah. Now, <laughs> dark matter is not a new concept by any means. It was hypothesized at least over 100 years ago, when in 1884, 1884, Lord Kelvin gave a talk stating that, quote, many of our stars, perhaps a great majority of them, may be dark bodies. But in the past few decades, this has grown from one simple conjecture into potentially one of the biggest questions in all of astrophysics today. I have a theory with almost no evidence, actually exactly no evidence, that <laughs> Lord Kelvin was actually talking about the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way, um, because I believe he was looking at the galaxy rotation curve, and so I think he was saying that there's not enough mass that you can see at the center of the galaxy for things to be orbiting like they are, but I mm -hmm. tried Googling this, I found absolutely nothing, so I got nothing to back up this story. <laughs> Now, as the name Dance with Dark Matter also implies, Will is going to be doing a short dance routine at the end of this episode, but unfortunately, <laughs> you probably won't be able to hear it. Too bad. <laughs> Too bad. It's going to be incredible. I'm really excited for it. <laughs> what you will hear is two exciting astrobytes about science at the cutting edge of this search for dark matter. But let's start simple and build up to that. So first, Malena and Will, why is it called dark matter and why haven't we detected it yet? Well, the name dark matter is just because we can't see it. So we don't know what it is. We call it dark. But in truth, it's dark because it doesn't interact with light at all. It doesn't release light. It doesn't scatter light. It doesn't have any of the properties of any other matter that we've identified when it comes to interacting with light. We only know about it because it interacts gravitationally. So it's matter. Presumably it has mass. But otherwise, it's not like anything else we know of. Mm -hmm. It's dark in terms of our understanding, too. Exactly. Okay, so if it's dark both in radiation and in our understanding of it, why do we think it's there at all? What are the major pieces of evidence? Well, Fritz Zwicky was the first to posit the existence based on some observational evidence in 1933, after he noticed that the galaxies in the coma cluster were moving too quickly to remain bound when comparing the rotational velocity to the gravitational attraction in the cluster. So hmm. he determined this using the virial theorem, which relates the time average kinetic and potential energy of a system. And then later on, Vera Rubin studied galaxy rotation curves, and she was looking at how quickly these galaxies rotate over time. And she found that the 
rotation curves were flat. So the outer parts of the galaxies were moving just as quickly as the inner parts. And this ended up later leading to the discovery of dark matter halos that permeate both individual galaxies and clusters of galaxies. So she found that galaxies need to actually include about five to ten times as much dark matter generally as regular baryonic matter if you'd like to explain these observations. And importantly in what uh, Rubin discovered was that you can't have all the dark matter clumped at the center of the galaxy. It wouldn't explain the flat rotation curve. It has to be fairly diffuse mm -hmm. and spread out around the galaxy, even extending far beyond the visible light of the galaxy into what we call now the dark matter halo. Right. And, of course, Vera Rubin, now the namesake for a major observatory that's going to come online very soon. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, is that observatory going to teach us a lot about dark matter? That would be appropriate, but I don't actually know. I know it's going to do a lot for constraining dark energy and mm. its evolution over time, but I don't know much about what it's doing with dark matter. Dark matter and dark energy, by the way, completely uncorrelated phenomena. <laughs> right. Just called dark because we don't understand either one of them. Right. Jumping back to dark matter, could it be that it's something that we can't detect, but it's not fundamentally different from the matter that we can detect? Or is it completely made up of something different than kind of the protons and neutrons that we are able to observe? Right, so this isn't a fully answered question. It could be sort of like the normal matter that we're used to, so baryonic matter. Um, but there's some good reasons to believe that at least most of it probably isn't baryons. Hmm. So if dark matter was made up of just diffuse gas and dust, then we should actually see it being lit up by background stars. So we should be able to see some signature of it if it's just interacting with light the same way that normal matter does. Gravitational microlensing searches also put limits on the dark matter fraction that could be in compact objects across the Milky Way between... I think like half the mass of the Earth up through many solar masses. And so that's a pretty large range unless you have like a huge number of free-floating exoplanets or something. It's probably not, and they'd have to be pretty small free-floating exoplanets too. It's probably not going to be the major component of dark matter. So it's generally believed that it's probably at least mostly not baryonic matter. Interesting. Right. Sometimes people think, well, could it be black holes because we can't see them? Mm. But it's definitely not black holes because if it were and there were five times the amount of black holes as there are regular matter to make up for the amount of dark matter that we know exists, we would see gravitational lensing events so much more regularly than we do. That's when you have you know, a black hole in front of an object, right? It uh, focuses the light briefly from the background object. And so we can pretty much rule that out as a possibility. And yeah, it's probably some other form of matter. Yeah, I think it's still hypothesized that primordial black holes are still on the list of possibilities, but mm. I'm actually not too sure how the properties of primordial black holes differ from like your everyday normal black hole. I think they're a lot smaller. Yeah, I think they're a lot smaller because they're supposed to be relics from the Big Bang, right? Mm -hmm. they don't accrete matter very much because of how small they are. So in contrast to a supermassive black hole at the center of a galaxy, which you can see from its shadow, like we did with the black hole at the center of M87, I don't think you'd be able to do that with any primordial black holes. Right. And I think primordial black holes are also just theorized and haven't been detected, if I'm not mistaken. And so right. it's kind of similar to these proposals of like, oh, maybe it's one of these particles that we've never seen because... Either way, we've never seen it. So. I was about to say, yeah, predict the properties of something that we can't see or study. Yeah. There's a lot of room in there for speculation. 
And now our last question, which is also maybe a little more in the speculative realm. Where do we think the dark matter might have come from? Yeah, no one really knows. There is a theory that I stumbled upon that it was created in the early universe as some sort of reaction or mechanism. Some people call it a phase change that created it and that it's stayed around ever since. Uh, I, don't, I think it's purely speculative at this hmm. point. Mm -hmm. It could be a lot of things. So it could be, this is just a list of things. Um, <laughs> primordial black holes, axions, sterile neutrinos, weakly interacting massive particles or WIMPs, gravitationally interacting massive particles or GIMPs. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of possibilities. And a lot of this is like particle physics. So actually a lot of experiments that are looking for dark matter are like particle physics labs. But then there's also complementary astrophysics studies that are searching for dark matter or at least clues to what dark matter is as well. So let's transition into our astrobites now that we've gotten a primer on why we think it exists. We're going to jump into the groups hunting for it. We'll start off with Malena, who's going to tell us about a couple of doctors taking x-rays to see what's going on in the heart of galaxy clusters. Yeah, so I'll be talking about an astrobite called Looking for a Dark Matter Needle in a Haystack by Sunayana Barkava. And it's about a paper by Bulbul et al. from 2014. The astrobite was actually only written, I think, a year or two ago, in 2019, yeah. Um, but it's about this really interesting paper that came out a few years ago that is sort of straightforwardly named Detection of an Unidentified Emission Line in the Stacked X-Ray Spectrum of Galaxy Clusters. So it's very to the point. You sort of <laughs> know exactly what you're going to be reading about. Hmm. There's this unidentified emission line that they ended up finding in this study. So there are two major types of searches for dark matter that I briefly touched upon at the beginning of the episode. You could either search directly or indirectly. So direct searches are looking for dark matter all the time. Particle physicists are running laboratory experiments to try to directly trap and study different types of theorized dark matter particles. And then indirect searches instead focus on searching for the signatures of dark matter to see how the imprints of this source manifest. Now, if it's dark, then what could these signatures look like? So that would be something like the galaxy rotation curve being flat or just some way that you can get a sense of where there is extra mass, maybe where you would expect to have extra mass and don't. So there's this idea of, you know, galaxies that maybe don't have dark matter. That's another interesting lab for just studying what mm -hmm. dark matter would be by constraining where it shows up and where it doesn't. Got it. I would sort of categorize this as an indirect search where it's looking for this emission line. So it's not actually trying to figure out, we want to trap this particle and like study its properties, but it's looking at what the signatures of one of these proposed particles would be. In particular, the sterile neutrino is what they're trying to probe in this study. Neutrinos are really, really light. So how could that be dark matter, which has to have a lot of mass? I think there would just have to be a lot of them. There have actually been quite a few predictions that dark matter could be different types of neutrinos, and I think some of them have been ruled out for various reasons. Mm -hmm. But if you just have enough of them, neutrinos really don't interact very much. So I think we have like a huge number of neutrinos passing through us all the time, and <laughs> yeah. we just don't notice. So right. because there are so many of them... I notice. I never stop noticing. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's just I I never stop noticing. <laughs> it drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah, so even though they're very low mass, they are so abundant that they still are one of these possibilities. So did these authors look for an x-ray signal predicted from sterile neutrinos or did they already have a spectrum and they found something in there they they could potentially attribute to sterile neutrinos? Sort of both. I'm actually not sure what direction this went. If they, you know, just were looking at this stack of galaxy clusters and happened to find this extra line, or if they knew specifically, oh, we want to check for a line in this particular place. Sure. Interesting. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure how the direction of discovery went, but what they ended up finding was this unidentified emission line at about three and a half kilo electron volts across the spectra of multiple galaxy clusters. So they observed 73 galaxy clusters, blue shifted them all into the rest frame to account for the different distances and stacked them all together to strengthen the signal. And then they fit a model with known emission lines, subtracted off and just looked for unknown lines. The reason that they're claiming that this might be related to the sterile neutrino is because that neutrino is believed to produce photons with the energy equivalent of half the sterile neutrino mass. So when it interacts, then it should produce photons at some particular energy range. And the exact value of the predicted sterile neutrino mass isn't perfectly constrained, but it's expected to be in the kiloelectron volt range, right around where this line is found. So the line was found at three and a half kiloelectron volts. So in a galaxy cluster, about 90% of the mass is made up of dark matter. So that means there should be enough decay events expected from that huge amount of dark matter so that the signal would be detectable by X-ray telescopes. And the fact that they stacked the signals from multiple galaxy clusters means they expected this signal to be prevalent in all of them, right? Yes. So that also kind of leads to one of the caveats of the study, which is that they were trying to also see if they just stack certain segments of their population if the same line still shows up. In the entire stack, uh, it shows up really nicely. You can see this clean line that doesn't seem to correspond with any known changes in energy states of charged particles. But when they repeated this analysis on just their bright clusters, they found kind of mixed results, where in one of their stacks, the signal still showed up. In another of three bright clusters, the signal wasn't significant anymore. And then in another stack, it was actually too significant for the amount of dark matter that was expected in the cluster. Huh. So that's a little suspicious. They found more matter than they needed? This emission line was stronger than you would expect for the amount of dark matter. Hmm. That is suspicious. Which is strange. Yeah. Weird. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of unclear. Follow-up observations since this publication, which it's now about seven years old, have had difficulties in recovering the signal. So it's not entirely clear what that original detection was, because it was quite strong in some of the clusters and less strong in the others, which, you know, isn't too surprising, because if it had been like, this is the thing, this is dark matter, then maybe we would all be learning about that in our classes today. But it looks like it, you know, remains elusive, as dark matter always does. <laughs> So say follow-up studies are done and they are able to reproduce this feature and they say it's probably due to a sterile neutrino, what would be the work to do after that? Yeah, I mean, I would expect that then 
the particle physics experiments trying to study the sterile neutrino would probably get more funding and maybe would be able to actually detect it. But yeah, I think that's sort of the main way that you would be able to probe it beyond the astrophysical sort of less direct detection methods. I think in order to really learn, you know, fundamentally what this thing is, then you would need to study it in a lab somehow. Uh, so I think that would probably be the direction I would expect. I'm still skeptical that neutrinos could be dark matter. <laughs> <laughs> I know that there are like good efforts to detect neutrinos with these uh, heavy water experiments mm -hmm. underground. And I think they detect the majority or maybe all of them coming from the sun, which wouldn't make sense. I mean, it makes sense from what we know about particle physics, right? The reactions in the sun would produce a lot of neutrinos. But you'd expect to find even more than coming from every direction, right? If we're surrounded by a cloud of dark matter. So it shouldn't be preferentially in one direction. Or maybe these aren't the sterile ones. I don't know, but... I was about to say, yeah, I would think the sterile neutrino might have a signature different from non-sterile neutrinos that we see from the sun. It seems a little bit coincidental that everything we know about neutrinos doesn't apply to this one class of neutrinos <laughs> that explains everything perfectly. I mean, I feel like that's how a lot of dark matter theories work, <laughs> where it's like, well, <laughs> nothing else works. We've narrowed down all the other possibilities, so... I guess we'll just propose this other thing because there's nothing else that seems to work. At least neutrinos already have a theoretical footing before dark matter. I mean, we already know dark matter acts like nothing we've ever observed. So the alternative would be to say it's like this other particle that we have no idea anything about and also acts like nothing we've observed. That's true. Yeah. I think the default behavior of scientists and people in general is often to try to explain something we don't know in grounds of something we do know, right? It's take an existing theory and modify it and tweak it and make it fit when the real answer is throwing out the whole theory and coming up with an entirely new one. <laughs> so I'm in the new theory camp. Dark matter is nothing like anything we've interacted with or observed before. But I can sympathize with the people that care to explore every corner of the things we know first. I would sort of argue that these experiments are looking for something we've never seen before, though, because these particles don't fit in the standard model. So, like, they're, they're just something that's completely different that doesn't fit into our framework. So that, that actually makes dark matter detections really exciting because we might learn a huge amount of physics if we figure out what these particles actually are. Maybe our entire framework is completely wrong or... It might just be a small adjustment, but it seems like given that we haven't figured out what it is yet, it might actually be a much larger adjustment. Mm -hmm. You two are talking like this is the discussion and we still have another <laughs> astrobite to get through. <laughs> <laughs> just getting ahead of ourselves. You're just Sorry. so excited to talk about dark matter. Before we move on to Will's astrobite, though, it's time for some mysterious murmurs of the bi-weekly dark matter annihilations for new physics. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to play a sound. Close your eyes.
I should say that's actually three different objects, but they have something in common. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to say it seemed like it was speeding up, but I'm not sure if that's just because it was three different objects. <laughs> or if I each... think it was just the different objects. Okay. It really sounded like a heartbeat to me, which makes me want to say it was like a heartbeat star or something. Because if I was trying to sonify that, then I would probably want to make it sound like a heartbeat, you know? Hmm. Hmm. I feel like that's a really cool effect. What about you, Will? What do you think it is? I was going to say pulsars. Hmm. Like maybe millisecond pulsars. The correct answer, Milena had it. It was a heartbeat star. These were three different heartbeat stars. and Ooh, very nice. She was also completely right in that I'm pretty sure they sonified <laughs> it to sound like a heartbeat <laughs> intentionally. Yeah, so what is a heartbeat star? So these are brightness variations that you're hearing from binary systems. The stars in these systems experience what are called tidally induced oscillations. So their orbits are highly eccentric, and that leads them to pass very close into one another. And when they do, the tidal forces on each other changes both the shape and the temperature of the stars. And we observe this as changes in brightness. Oh, wow. So if you look at the change in brightness over time, it looks like these systems have a regular heartbeat as they pass close to one another extremely regularly, which is why we call them heartbeat stars. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Also, we romanticize them when they pass close to another body. Aww. And I think that is a romantic idea to us. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> the signals you're hearing in this audio are from a few different systems, and each of the pulses has been sped up about 2 million times, and the pitch has been increased 23 octaves. And what I like about this sonification is that it describes the heartbeats of these stars in BPM, or beats per month, <laughs> instead of beats per minute. So each of the stars you heard has a BPM between one and four. Wow, that's super clever. It is very clever. So they orbit vaguely once a month or so? Right, exactly. Hmm. How long will it take for these orbits to decay to the point where they're pretty much circular? Usually tidal forces circularize an orbit, and I thought the timescale of that is pretty short on the order of a million years, but maybe not. I think it depends on the objects you're looking at. So I know for exoplanet circularization can take significantly longer than that like i think it tends to be on the billions of years time scale oh wow i'm not sure about stars i'd have to do the math <laughs> <laughs> right well they're more easily deformed than planets so yeah that could possibly work in their favor or it could mean that they're more susceptible to it sure yeah i wonder how much energy is dissipated from the orbit during each pass and then that would set the time scale but i don't have a good sense for that Right. right. I think each individual orbit would perhaps dissipate more energy. I mean, I'm thinking like hot Jupiter type planets because that's mm. the types of planets that we see. And so a lot of those haven't even circularized. And so I would think that stars that are passing each other once a month rather than once every few days, even if each individual pass leads to more tidal dissipation, uh, it might still take longer just because they don't interact as often. Mm -hmm. I wonder the extent to which they emit gravitational waves as well, but I guess those are far below the level that you'd be able to detect them unless they were like merging at the end or something. Sometimes stars do merge. That's a thing. It's pretty cool. Triple systems are cool. Sounds cool. White dwarf mergers are something we're hoping to detect with Lisa in gravitational waves. That's cool. Which would be very cool. That's super cool. Totally. Okay, so those were heartbeat stars. That was my sonification for the episode. <laughs> cool.
while we were talking, I did a quick Google search, and I found one paper that estimated a decay time scale of 3 times 10 to the 7 years. So that's 10, 30 million years, right? For what type of system? A heartbeat star. Hut 1981. Good paper. Covers all the equations for this. <laughs> but I don't have it in front of me. <laughs> in our second astrobite of this episode, Will's going to tell us about a dark matter detector half a billion years in the making. Take it away, Will. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great introduction. This astrobite is called a paleo detector for dark matter. How ancient rocks could help unravel the mystery. It was written by Thankful Cromarty, and the paper was published by Bohm and others, 2020, in the journal Physics Letters B. And this is describing how we might detect WIMPs, which are <laughs> weakly interacting massive particles, one of the <laughs> theories of what dark matter could be. And I think they actually say that it's not only WIMPs they could detect, but they base their design around the WIMP candidate. As Milena alluded to earlier, there are two ways to hunt for dark matter, direct search and an indirect search. So this is talking about a direct search, that the authors would look for a record of dark matter particles hitting rocks deep underground. And you have to use the most ancient rocks because you want to collect as many dark matter particles as possible but you also want it to be shielded from other sorts of interactions. So it's got to be deep underground to be shielded from cosmic rays and erosion. But that also means, you know, maybe some of the dark matter won't get through. You want to use the most ancient rocks that will collect the most number of interactions. And they also believe that the interactions are very rare. So it would take a long, long time even to get one. So you want to maximize the likelihood that you can get an interaction. So potentially you'd maximize that by looking for a ton of rocks or looking through many, many different rocks? Yeah, that's the idea. So first of all, this seems like a really cool way to search for dark matter. So I am intrigued to learn more. <laughs> but also I was curious, is the idea that the rocks have been underground and that the dark matter just doesn't interact with the surface material and it'll interact with the underground material or i suppose it'll interact with everything but you'd actually see the signatures better in the underground material or is the idea that it used to be on the surface and it got covered up or something no no they want rocks that have been underground the whole time okay because if it's on the surface you could get cosmic rays or other sorts of weathering effects that are going to contaminate your sample so it's got to be underground the whole time the wimps are weakly interacting so the theory goes that it'll take I don't know how long, but a long time to get even a single interaction because what has to happen is a wimp has to hit the nucleus of an atom and the nucleus has to recoil a little bit. And when a nucleus recoils, it emits light. So that will leave a signature in the rock, but you have to be dead on accurate with the wimp and maybe even sometimes it doesn't interact still. So it's a very rare situation. Because the atom is mostly empty space, right? I mean, the nucleus is so right. small that hitting it dead on seems almost impossible, at least for one atom. But I guess if you scale up, then it gets more probable. Exactly. Are you looking for, like, small deformations in the crystal lattice or something? Or, like, what is the study actually going to be looking for in terms of, like, the effect that this dark matter would actually have? Right. What they're looking for is microscopic tracks of chemicals 
in the rocks that have been altered. And I don't know even if they can say how they've been altered, but they're looking for tracks. And you would hope that if a wimp smashed into a nucleus, it would travel some distance in the rock. I mean, some distance is still microscopic, you know, maybe maybe nanometers, but it'll leave a one-dimensional track. So you have a record of the direction of travel. And there are specific chemical rocks that they care about more because they're actually lower density and somewhat brittle. And these sorts of chemicals would, they believe, be the most susceptible because the wimps could travel but penetrate further into the rock and leave a longer trace. It'd be a larger signature. Is this a proposed search or did they actually do this study? Oh, they have not done this. No. Okay. <laughs> um, this proposal requires going 12 kilometers deep into the earth, which is five times deeper than the deepest currently operating lab. Wow. So, no, we're far away from making this a reality. Got it. I'm wondering, would the effect of the WIMPs be substantially different from the effect of radioactive isotopes decaying? Hmm. Good question. I think that the rocks they chose tend to not have radioactive elements, but I don't know for sure. Or it might just be different energy ranges or something. Well, I, I guess part of it is these streaks would be a little bit bizarre to happen by chance from radioactive decay because the decay is going to happen all throughout the rock. And so you're not going to get hmm. a streak in a, in a line of decaying particles. That's statistically unlikely. But I also think these are radioactively stable. I'll tell you what kinds of rocks they considered. It's zebuulite, which I had not heard of, but it's lithium carbonate. It's actually a type of salt, not the most common type, but it's a brittle uh, salt compound. Halite, which is table salt in rock form. Iltisite, which is actually just a bunch of different combinations of elements. I don't really know anything about that. And then there is sylvanite, we actually have a really cool rock museum nice. here, so I, it's quite possible I've seen these at some point, <laughs> but all their names sound the same to me. So These are very common elements. They're not bizarre. They don't have any of the lanthanides or actinides in them. They're probably not radioactive. Melania, you might have even walked past a dark matter signature without even knowing it. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so they've proposed this experiment to find potentially a signature from WIMPs. What's the feasibility that somebody's actually going to go out and do this study? Or is it just a thought experiment that maybe if we were able to do this, then you might find something? Yeah, it's not great in terms of feasibility. Uh, I think the advantage of this is it, they predict it would be two to three orders of magnitude more sensitive to WIMPs than the best current detectors. So it is a, is a great idea. And it doesn't require any experimental setup because the rocks are there. They've been there for millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years. So we just have to go and collect them. I think one of the challenges is to get the best resolution. The samples have to be destroyed for electron microscopy. And that might make people upset because if you don't get their exact best observation, you might lose the sample. But mm. there are some other advantages to this, such as that if you were able to detect this with regularity, you might be able to show how dark matter changed over time by looking at different rocks. You know, you could find older rocks and see the earlier dark matter signatures, compare that to some of the newer rocks. So that's a nice ancillary benefit. But again, this mm. remains very much a proposal. 
I wonder if you went to another planet. I mean, this would probably be harder, but if you wouldn't have to drill as deep, if there's like another planet that doesn't really have erosion as much, it doesn't have tectonic plates, maybe you wouldn't have to go that far below the surface, but it would also be difficult because you'd have to do that all remotely unless you sent someone there. Also would depend on the atmosphere, right? Because you'd still have to figure out how deep you would need to go to not worry about cosmic rays, things like that. Right. That's correct. Yeah, cosmic rays, I think, are the bigger problem than the erosion Mm -hmm. and tectonic activity. So if you were to go to somewhere like Mars, you'd still have that problem. Probably worse. I think the atmosphere does shield some amount of cosmic rays. Um, And certainly Earth's magnetic field shields a lot of cosmic rays, which Mars would not be able to do. So potentially it could be worse. Just go to Venus. (laughs) Yeah, I think you'd have many other problems on Venus doing a scientific experiment, but sure. could see people sending grad students to venus no big deal just go to venus let's just dive into the sun we'll grab them directly (laughs) (laughs) it's very important for your dissertation to get experience in situ in the field (laughs) this committee would look very favorably upon a dissertation with hands-on experience (laughs) well thanks for bringing it to us will yeah i think that's where we'll wrap up this bite for today Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And now it's time for our one-sentence summary. So why don't you kick us off, Melina? All right. A mysterious emission line in the X-ray may holds the key to unveiling the nature of dark matter. But as always in this tricky field, the picture has turned out to be a little bit more complicated than a straightforward confirmation of dark matter's origins. I'll hand it off to you, Will. Someday, an overworked grad student might unearth a soft rock from 12 kilometers deep in the earth and detect traces of dark matter. Mm. Or Venus. Goals. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I don't think we have time for a ton of discussion. I just wanted to ask, I think typically in these dark matter searches, we look for one type of particle. Is it a sterile neutrino? Is it a wimp? But is it possible that dark matter consists of more than one type of matter? I think that's very possible, and it could make these searches even trickier if it's true, because then the signals that you might expect from any given component might be a lot weaker if it's just part of the picture. Um, With that said, there's sort of like the Occam's razor, where, you know, the more complicated picture tends to be the disfavored one. So... I don't know. I mean, intuitively, I kind of want it to just be one thing because, you know, physics is supposed to be this beautiful, simple thing. But that's not really an informed decision that or it's not a decision at all. (laughs) It's just (laughs) it's just like, you know, something where it's like, oh, well, this would be quite nice. And it would make for a simpler model, which is always what we're striving for. I don't see why there can't be a family of dark matter particles with different properties. I mean, once we open the floodgates to there are dark things in the universe, I mean, where does it stop? Like, they, they could be all different types. Hmm. I mean, it's it'd be great if it were simple and just one thing, but I don't think anything in physics or astronomy has ever been that simple. That's not true. E&M is like, I mean, it's not that simple, but it's pretty straightforward in that everything just like works together even if the math is kind of annoying if you actually work it out it's just like wow everything falls into place i don't know if that's my definition of simple 
it's just so elegant. It's elegant, if not simple. <laughs> so it's elegant. I don't know. Having having lots of different things seems less of an elegant solution. But it's also wrong, right? E&M breaks down at the quantum level. So does every other macro science. So the truth is, the more we learn about physics, the more we realize everything we think was rock solid and, and beautiful and the foundations of the universe turns out to actually just be one example of the complexity of things that really exists. When I was looking into the subject more in advance of this episode, I went down the rabbit hole and people talk about the dark sector and dark forces that where maybe you have dark interactions between dark matter particles. And I mean, it seems like there's just this whole realm of possibility, but I completely agree with you, Melina, in that it, it's much less elegant to invoke many, many different things than just one that matches our predictions. Okay, and my last question, we've spent this entire episode talking about what dark matter doesn't do. It doesn't interact, we can't see it, we don't know very little about it. What constraints do we have about what it might look like? We definitely know it has gravity. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely know it obeys gravity. It has mass. Beyond that, I think we're hard-pressed to say anything concretely. Yeah. We sort of know the distribution, so it tends to be you know, around these galaxies and clusters. Mm -hmm. And so you can sort of try to study where it is and where it's not. There might be some galaxies that don't have it. So that might tell us something more fundamental about both dark matter and also how galaxies form. But yeah, it seems like a lot of the astrophysical constraints are pretty indirect where it's, it's just like, these are some sort of tangential points that all give us a tiny part of this picture. I don't think we have a lot of great direct evidence. It's all very indirect, which is maybe the problem. That's why it's so evasive. Right. Like you mentioned, the structure of the universe is sort of based around the way that dark matter has mass, in that at the largest scale, we have what's called the cosmic web, sort of a disorganized spider web, filaments at the Intersection of the filaments, you get galaxy clusters, superclusters, and so on. But also, the cosmic microwave background is actually a picture of dark matter in the early universe because the overdensities and underdensities in that image are representative of where dark matter is and where dark matter isn't. I mean, right. the, the differences are very small, right? It's five orders of magnitude down, but it's still a little bit more or a little bit less dark matter. Okay, I, I decided I wanted to ask one more, but it's a very quick question. Okay. Do either of you think we'll detect dark matter in the next 10 years? And what kind of detection will it be? What will it look like? I think in order to say whether I think we'll detect it, I would need to ascribe some belief to each of these hypotheses. And I don't know that I have that right now. But I do think we're going to be able to fairly definitively rule out a lot of the candidates and if any of them are right then we would be able to show that they are right but for example um one of my friends here actually just published a nature paper that basically showed it's probably not axions and like that just wow. came out and i think there are a lot of experiments out there that are doing that right now that are basically building the infrastructure and actually testing whether there is evidence for each of these individual hypotheses and all of those are sort of running in parallel 
Um, so I think over the next decade, we'll at least be able to rule out a lot of options, if not necessarily find the right one. <laughs> but even that's very useful, because then you can use process of elimination to figure out what remains. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will say that direct detection will not happen in the next 10 years. I don't know where or how that's going to happen, but 10 years doesn't seem soon enough because I could imagine 10 years ago, you asking the same question and many people would have said, yeah, I mean, the way the technology is developing in the next 10 years and 10 years went by and we almost got nothing. So I don't think so. I think indirect detection, more cosmological measurements, uh, better studies of galaxy rotation curve, exploring the weird dwarf galaxies with little to no dark matter. Yeah, I think we're going to get a lot more around the edges of what might this thing be. And yeah, as like Melina said, we'll rule out a lot of options using that. I mean, WIMP's theory has been around a long time and maybe it's not going to make it through the next round of cuts. But I think eventually we will get some more information. Eventually we will learn what this is. But next 10 years, not a whole lot. What do you think, Alex? Do you have <laughs> expectations? Well, I have a professor here at UIUC who always says, go for the bold predictions in the next 10 years because if they're right, then your mind is going to be blown. And if I was wrong, then you're never going to remember it. So I'm going to boldly say we will make a direct detection in the next 10 years. What it will look like, I have no idea. All right. <laughs> but if any of our listeners think that we'll get some kind of direct detection in the next 10 years and have a sense for what that might look like or just want to wildly speculate, please reach out to us, astrosoundbites <laughs> at gmail.com. And I think there we'll conclude episode 36, A Dance with Dark Matter. Oh, is this the time for the dance? <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, I have my uh, I have my tap shoes just, you know, in the other room. Let me just... <laughs> yeah, why don't, you, why don't you just start dancing and I'll read the outro. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to read the two astrobytes we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. We now have 36 episodes all about the latest and greatest astronomy research. So... If you've just listened to this one, go tell 35 of your closest friends to each listen to an earlier episode, and you'll all finally have something to talk about that doesn't have anything to do with masks or Zoom fatigue. <laughs> you can find all of our episodes at astrosoundbites.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Siven... <laughs> Sivenite? Si... Sivan Nyat. I can't pronounce this word. Savaniati. <laughs> that was the worst one by far. Sivan. Sivan. Eight. Sivaniate? Sivanite? It's not Sivanite because there's an A in there. Oh my god, it was a typo. It was Sylvanite the whole time. No wonder it didn't make any sense. Sylvanite. 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 <laughs> oh, God. All right.